This is Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charging for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could not find corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforced a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth 
of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the, dens, of the den, the lion overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, thanks, Andrew, for reading that so well for us. And uh, keep your leaflets open as we have a look at that passage in a little detail this morning. Uh, let's come to God in prayer first, shall we? Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you again this morning for your word and that we can come here in freedom and be gathered around your word and uh, humble ourselves before you. And we pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts with your Holy Spirit and through your word, that you'd help me to be clear and that we might together learn and grow in our Christian faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're about halfway through the book of Daniel now. And uh, the first six chapters are actually all about Daniel's life in exile uh, as a, uh, in Babylon as a top civil servant, basically. And next week, we're going to start in the second half of the book. And that's, of course, the visions that Daniel had. So uh, stay tuned for that. Well, here in today's story, Daniel is now in his 80s and he's facing possibly the greatest threat of his long life being thrown into a den of lions, hungry lions. If you look carefully through history, you'll find that it's the normal pattern for Christians to be persecuted, and especially, I might add, by the state. 
In fact, just this week, Greg Sheridan in The Australian commenting on a shooting two weeks ago in Nigeria, which killed 50 worshippers at a church and wounded many more. He writes this, Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the planet. Christians face systematic and serious persecution, either violence or intolerable pressure, in more than 50 countries. More than 350 million Christians live in situations in which they have a good chance of suffering persecution. Now, of course, Jesus told us, didn't he, ahead of time. He said, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves, and in this world you will have trouble. And what Jesus said was certainly the experience of the early church right from the start. In the first few chapters of Acts, we read the disciples are threatened. Peter and John are arrested and Stephen was martyred. That all happened in the first few years of the church. And then when Christianity took off and spread throughout the Roman Empire, it wasn't long before Nero and other Roman emperors persecuted and brutalised Christians. And the rest of the New Testament and history is full of accounts of Christians suffering at the hands of the state. Jesus said it, history proves it, and we should expect it, shouldn't we? We love to talk about the Christian experience, especially the joy and the peace and the comfort there is in the Christian life. But it's easy to forget, especially uh, privileged people that we are living in this country, easy to forget that trouble and pain is also part of the authentic Christian life, isn't it? And especially the pain of rejection and persecution. And it's certainly part of Daniel's experience reading these stories, and it will be part of ours. See, the book of Daniel asks the question of us, how do we as Christians live in a culture that actually rejects God. Think about our culture for a moment. Where today will our young people hear that sex is about total self-giving of one person to another for life? Where will we hear that in our culture? And that marriage is the only valid context for sex because it's that intimate, that special, that precious. Will they ever hear that from our culture? Not at all, quite the opposite. And we need to pray for our young people because as they seek to follow Jesus, they'll find themselves marginalised in this culture. But even more than that, if we, if we were to say publicly in the, in the papers or out in the street that Jesus is the only way to be saved and the only way to be reconciled to God, you'd probably be called a bigot and an enemy of a of our relativistic, pluralistic culture. How will we as Christians live in a culture that increasingly rejects God? Well, we need to read Daniel 6. We need to read Daniel 6 over and over again in the community of, of saints. And it's a story of allegiance to God in a strange and hostile culture, and it's been given to strengthen God's people when they're opposed and persecuted. Two things we see in the story. God's servant is opposed and persecuted, and the servant, God's servant, is vindicated. Very simple outline. 
Firstly, God's servant is opposed and persecuted. Why was Daniel, in this context, opposed and persecuted? Well, at one level, it was just simply because of jealousy and fear. Look at verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel had so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king had planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. A little way down, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So here's a man who's been actually in public life for 50 years. He served under three administrations. He rose to the top every time, first under Nebuchadnezzar, then under Belshazzar, and now Darius. And there's not a spot on him. He's squeaky clean. The king brings Daniel out of retirement because of his excellent character. And he plans to appoint him now above all the other administrators. You can imagine how they felt. This old guy promoted ahead of us. Of course they're jealous. It's the sort of thing that happens in offices everywhere, on the work side everywhere. They're not only jealous, they're actually afraid because of the crackdown that would happen in corruption in the empire. No doubt some of these guys were on the take and this trustworthy Jew, Daniel, would institute a crackdown on corruption. Why? Because Daniel seeks the prosperity of the city of Babylon where God had placed him. Of course he'd rather be in Jerusalem, but he recognises God's sovereignty and it was God who brought him into this situation. And as a man of God in this alien situation, he prays and works for the prosperity of the city as God instructed the exiles to do through Jeremiah the prophet. And so this goody-two-shoes Daniel just has to go. And the administrators and satraps hatch this scheme to get rid of him. That's the kind of world we live in. Human nature doesn't change, does it? Jealousy and fear can be strong drivers. And that's what we're up against ourselves from time to time. That's what we're up against in ourselves and in the people around us. But the second reason that Daniel is actually opposed and persecuted is that he is God's man. Look at verse 5. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And they go to the king and they sort of massage his ego a bit, don't they? Make King Darius live forever. Why don't you make yourself a god for 30 days? In one of the Peanuts cartoons, Linus says to Charlie Brown, when I grow up, I'm going to be a famous doctor I'll save everybody, I'll perform miraculous surgery, I'll work wonders, I'll be a right regular deity. That's what Darius is doing, isn't it? Blinded by flattery, he thinks, yes, I'll be a god for 30 days. And he sets up a law to that effect, so that the law of the Medes and Persians, pray to Darius for 30 days, is actually pitted against the law of God. You shall have no other gods before me. Darius actually reminds me of the guy James Hacker in, you know, the, the sitcom Yes Minister. Uh, <laughs> Darius has got no idea really what's going on. He gets stitched up by his civil servants 
and he finds that his best civil servant, the one he can trust the most, is on death row because of a law that he's passed and is helpless to do anything about. It's very much like Mr Hatcher. Look at verse 14. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Darius finds that he actually can't trust his administrators. He can't trust his own judgment. And as it turns out, he can't even trust his lines. They don't even do the job that he expects them to do. Notice there's a sort of an irrational, demonic element to all this. It's not just flesh and blood we're up against, is it? It's not just jealousy and, and fear that's driving the persecution of Daniel. There's an adversary behind all this. God's adversary. The real enemy is actually Satan. And Daniel is thrown to the lines, not because he's a good man, but because he's God's man. Encouraging God's people, reminding God's people of God's salvation plan. That's why Daniel prays towards Jerusalem. He's praying the promises of God, the promises that God made through Jeremiah, that he would bring the exile back, that he would preserve a remnant, that the promised Messiah would come from the Jews. Salvation comes from the Jews. And if Satan can destroy the Jews in Babylon, if the Jews disappear in exile in Babylon, then we're finished. Then Satan has won that great battle, the war of the serpent against the seed of the woman mentioned in Genesis 3. And remember how the, the exiles returned to Jerusalem? Cyrus, uh, the Medo-Persian conqueror of Babylon, was God's instrument to bring that about. Notice the footnote in your Bible makes the comment in verse 28 that many scholars believe Darius the Mede was actually Cyrus the Persian, the same, same person, just different names, and sometimes kings had two names. We see that elsewhere in the Bible as well. And so Daniel is a key figure in God's strategy to preserve God's people in a hostile place and ultimately to save the world. And if Satan can remove Daniel from the place of influence in Cyrus's court, God's people will disappear and God's plan will come to nothing. And if you stand for Christ, if you stand for the kingdom and its values, Satan will oppose you. You can be guaranteed of that. And if you encounter sort of irrational opposition at work, at family, in the home, remember the battle is not just about flesh and blood, a battle of flesh and blood. There's a spiritual dimension at work here too. And we'll see that much more in the later chapters of Daniel. So how do we survive this? How can we stand firm? Well, you have a devotional life, don't you? You have a life of prayer. Look at Daniel in verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home. Immediately, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened to Jerusalem and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. See, 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 prayer is the wellspring of the Christian life. Daniel had a pattern of devotion to fall back on. It wasn't a desperate last resort thing. It was a habit. Corrie ten Boom once said, prayer should be the steering wheel, not the spare tyre. And so three times a day, he switched off the TV, dropped everything to connect with his Lord, to soak in the reality that the living God is in charge. It was the steering wheel of Daniel's life. He dedicated his life to God. He committed the issues he faced that day to God. 
He thanked God for his goodness and his promises. And it always challenges us, doesn't it? Do we make time to pray? Or is our Christian life sort of hollow and prayerless? Is your prayer life like a steering wheel that is sort of guiding your life? Or is it like a spare tyre you pull out when there's trouble? Let's help each other. Let's, let's talk about our, our, the spiritual discipline over coffee this morning and encourage each other in that. How else will we stand when the pressure's on, really? We need God's help. Call on him often. So God's servant is opposed and persecuted. And secondly, we see that God's servant is vindicated. Now, history tells us that the early Christians were terribly persecuted by the state, burned in fire and thrown to the lions. God didn't rescue them, did he? God doesn't always rescue his people from physical dangers, does he? But ultimately, he will vindicate every one of his people. And we see clear pointers to that here in Daniel's experience. First, there's a pointer to the resurrection. In fact, the early Christians in Rome, driven underground by Nero's persecution, saw the story of Daniel in the lion's den as a picture of the resurrection. And still today, you can see that story carved out on the walls of catacombs where early Christians hid and met in secret. So many were thrown to the lions and their hope was in the ultimate vindication of the new resurrection life. And the story of Daniel reminded them of that. Look at verse 17. A stone was placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring. Likewise, a stone was placed on Jesus' tomb, wasn't it? And it was sealed. But the grave couldn't hold him. Death could not keep him, as the old hymn puts it. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. And so in the story of Daniel in the lion's den, the early Christians saw a picture of the resurrection and vindication of God's servant, Jesus Christ. No wonder they drew such comfort from the story. This is how they were able to face the lions in the Colosseum. They were sure of the resurrection to come. And that's our comfort as well, isn't it? In the face of injustice and the hostility of our culture, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life to come without, where there will be no more conflict and injustice. That's the second pointer we see here of the vindication of God's servant is there's a new era foreshadowed here. Look at verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. What does this miracle tell us? An 80-year-old man walking with lions, patting them perhaps, and the mouths shut. Well, Isaiah predicted that day, didn't he? Isaiah 11, the wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. That's a picture, isn't it? You know what lions symbolise in the Bible? Over and over again, especially in the Psalms, the roaring lion is a symbol of disharmony and dysfunction and danger. And Isaiah says one day God will deal with this. 
He will restore the universe and there will be nothing but peace and harmony. Our bodies will work right. Nature will work right. There will be no more disease, no more conflict, no more death. And Daniel is actually pointing us to a new order and a new era, to the new heavens and an earth where the lion will lie down with the lamb. It's a foretaste of the kingdom that will come. See, miracles like this are not the suspension of the natural order. They're actually a restoration of the natural order. You realise that? The miracles that Jesus did, healing every disease, feeding the hungry, opening the eyes of the blind, raising the dead, were not a suspension of the natural order. They were actually a restoration of the natural order. This is how God means it to be. This is how he intends it to be and how it will be. It's the world we all want, isn't it? Politics will never deliver that. Science, medicine will never deliver that. Only Jesus will bring that about. How can we know for certain? Certain. Look at verse 22. My God has sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. It's interesting, isn't it? Who's the angel of the Lord? Remember in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar saw one like the Son of God walking around in the fire, protecting Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And here Daniel says, God sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions. Who is this angel of the Lord who declares Daniel innocent? Psalm 22 tells us about the Saviour who, dying on the cross, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it says in that psalm, all who see me mock me and hurl insults at me. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths against me. You lay me in the dust of death. See, the roaring lions in the Bible also represent the justice of God. Think of Amos chapter 3. The Lord roars against all violence and oppression. And Daniel points to Jesus who went to the ultimate den, didn't he? before real lions, the justice of God, and took the punishment for us. He was torn apart by the justice of God so that we might be declared innocent in the sight of God. That's why we can be so sure that God loves us and accepts us, accepts us that we're destined for heaven and for glory, not because we've lived a good life like Daniel, but because Jesus, who Daniel points to, lived the perfect life for us and was torn apart on the cross for us. And this story reminds us again that things aren't out of control. It might look like chaos in the world around us, but the living God rules. Look at verse 26. Listen to Darius. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heaven and on earth. Darius actually finds out that he can trust the living God and we need to find that out too, don't we? Nothing's too difficult for God. When Daniel walked out of that lion's den, there was no doubt whatsoever that God reigns. And when Jesus walked out of the tomb, there's no doubt whatsoever God reigns. Our God reigns. He's in control. We can trust him, can't we? And we ought to obey him, shouldn't we? 
and draw a line and stand for him and live for his kingdom, not fearing opposition or persecution or even death. Because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Let me finish. Daniel's ambition was to be faithful to God. What's your ambition? Every day Daniel opened his window to Jerusalem and renewed his allegiance to the living God who reigns there. And shouldn't we do do the same? We're citizens of heaven, the new Jerusalem, and we eagerly await a saviour from there. That's the great hope we have. Our king is coming back. And when he does, we'll have powerful bodies and brilliant minds and live in a transformed universe where there'll be no more conflict and persecution and justice. And so many wonderful old saints we know have gone to be with the Lord. You know, grandparents, parents, fellow pilgrims in Christ. This is what they all looked forward to especially as they came to the end of their earthly lives. And this ultimately became their ambition and their great hope. What's your ambition? Easy for us to sort of have ambitions like uh, making a name for ourselves or, or enjoying ourselves or being happy and fulfilled, have a good marriage and family to be sort of enjoying our holidays. Don't you know that you're actually in Babylon? This world is not your home. This world will bring trouble into your life. This is a decaying society. How will you stand firm? Open your windows to the new Jerusalem every day and pray. Remind yourself you're waiting for a saviour from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, there will be the resurrection, and we will be transformed. Let's encourage each other to make it our ambition to know and serve him who will one day make all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning for your precious word to us. Thank you for Daniel, who over the weeks, and especially here in chapter 6, so clearly points us to Jesus who lived the perfect life for us and died the death we deserve to die and was vindicated by his resurrection so that we might be forgiven and declared innocent, righteous and have the hope of glory in our hearts. He is our saviour and king and we eagerly wait his return when he will wipe away every tear and make all things new. Lord, you've told us that while we wait, we should expect trouble and opposition and that this world is not our home. Keep us close to you, Lord. Help us to pray so that in the day of trouble we might stand firm, always filled with the hope of the gospel. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.